0: Father, we thank you for your word to us today. We pray that, you might, that we might hear what you have to say to us. Amen. In the English language, uh, we have a saying, I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. I don't know where it comes from, but it means I heard it from a reliable source. And uh, This piece of information I'm passing on to you can be trusted because it has trustworthy origins. It comes from someone who would know this thing firsthand. I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, Three years ago, uh, Omid Scobie and Caroline Durand uh, published a book about the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan. And that book made some explosive claims about the rifts that had developed between the prince and his wife and the rest of the British royal family. And there was significant interest in what the book had to say, uproar in some circles. How could the authors say such things? From where did they get such incendiary information? Who were their sources? Lo and behold, it eventually came out that, that Meghan had permitted a close friend of hers to talk to the book's authors. And so it turned out that it was reliable, Um, at least as far as it presented the hurting couple's point of view, it had come pretty much straight from the horse's mouth. And this question of where information has come from, the origin of what we have heard, upon whose authority it is spoken, it matters, especially where the contents of the information are controversial. There's a reason why we tend to go to the BBC website rather than to social media for our news. Why official biographies generally sell better than unofficial ones. Why the courts test witnesses and look for multiple high-quality witnesses rather than just taking the first person's words at face value. The origin of the truth we receive matters, especially when the content is controversial. And we must decide whether or not to believe this piece of information. Um, So we're back this morning in the book of Galatians, and and really we're still in the introduction. We'll be in the introduction right through to the end of chapter 2. And we might be slightly wishing that Paul would would up the pace a bit, maybe maybe cut to the chase. Do we we really need what what feels like a, a long, potted history of Paul's apostleship He said, they said, I did, they said, I went, they came. Is it necessary, Paul? Can't we just get into the meat of the issue? And and reading this potted history, it probably doesn't really feel like our world, what Paul's writing about. Peter, James, John, we know their names, we know they're important, but we haven't met them personally. And we've no idea where Cilicia is. We'd have to consult that globe we had earlier to find out where Damascus is. And perhaps it feels like a bit of a storm in a teacup, but much ado about nothing. A big deal then, for them, but do we still need it in our Bibles today? Well, having spent some time in the passage this past week, I think we do. I think this passage has much to contribute to our faith today. Because this passage is all about the origin of the gospel. Where has this gospel that we have heard come from? And how do we know that we can trust it? And if you are, if you have ever truly tried to live as a Christian, you will know that that question is not academic, but at least not only academic. It's deeply personal. For to accept this gospel, to base your life upon it, as Jesus calls us to do, has huge personal implications. It changes everything. I've been reading Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time over the last few weeks. It's really interesting and it's important. But it doesn't actually make a difference to me personally, to my life, that the rate at which the universe is expanding doesn't actually affect the things that I say and do interesting and important as such scientific questions might be. Usually, I'll be reading novels, and I can tell you they make very little difference to my day-to-day life. I've yet to take up Victor Hugo's call to join the revolution in Les Miserables. I'm not planning on giving over my life to plotting a great revenge like the Count of Monte Cristo, and I don't have enough daughters to make Pride and Prejudice's Mr. Bennett my life's model. (laughs) And the stories within the British royal family, interesting as they might be, have no personal implications for me. It, it makes no difference what's gone on in those relationships to the things I do, say, think, and feel. But the gospel, to accept this gospel message as true, well, that changes everything, it has huge implications. But doesn't the gospel have to be true if we're to make the sacrifices it calls us to make, the sacrifices many of us in this room have made? If we're going to stay single because we won't marry an unbeliever, if we're going to give birth to the baby that we never intended to conceive, if we're going to give up our life here in the West and travel across the world, to tell other people this news, if we're going to be passed over for promotions because we're too honest, not gung-ho committed to every ethical initiative that comes our way, or if because for the sake of our church commitment we won't put in the extra 10 hours a week that's expected of us. Well, the gospel has to be true. If we're going to make sacrifices like these, if we're going to keep loving the parents we'd rather just cut ties with, if we're going to forgive that person even though they did that thing to us. If we're going to stay true to our spouse, we would rather give our hearts to another. If we're going to lose contact with members of our family because they don't want to speak to us anymore because we follow Christ. We have to know that this gospel is true. If we're going to make sacrifices such as these, we have to know if we can trust this message, if it can bear the weight of the sacrifices it causes me to make. And if these aren't questions we ask personally, then these questions around the truth of the gospel are certainly questions that our culture asks. And they're the questions that Paul was being asked in Galatia. What's the source of your message, Paul? What's the origin of this gospel you've taught us? Are you just spoon-feeding us what the apostles spoon-fed you? Are your claims to authenticity a con? Is the gospel nothing more than a glorious work of your own imagination, Paul? A flight of fancy. What's the source of your message? How can we know that we can trust it? Because it asks some very big things of us. And questions like these have never been far from the church. Uh, Some of you might have heard of um, Albert Schweitzer and his 1906 book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And with that book uh, began a question. um, Who was the real, the historical Jesus? How can we get behind these gospel accounts, the overblown, inflated works of the early church uh, and their explosive theology, and find out who the man of Jesus really was? And that agenda has not gone anywhere far in the 120 years since that book came out. Just think of um, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, claiming that Jesus was a married man, that the Gospel of Thomas is the real one we should pay account to about 20 years ago. Or about 10 years ago, Philip Pullman's The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, a novel, but, but the suggestion that Jesus was just a good moral man whose legacy was taken over by this egotistical Christ. And that's even before we get started on the many, many attacks that have been made on Paul over recent decades. So we in the church have never been far away from questions like these. And many of us will feel rocked. We find them unsettling, understandably so. And so that puts us in a similar position to the church in Galatia, feeling a little fragile, not sure whether they can, whether they should, continue to believe what they once accepted, not sure that they can continue to base their lives on Jesus. Some of us may, though we're still sitting here in church, have already gone a long way down that path, have already given up on trusting Jesus. Let me urge us this morning that as Christians we don't need to run from such questions in fear, because our gospel, our God, can most certainly withstand questions such as these. There is nothing to fear. The words of Christ really are words that we can build our lives upon. So, as we said earlier, um, this passage is essentially um, a potted history of Paul's early apostleship, a, a memoir. Uh, It's a bit like maybe the flashback montage in a film which sort of skins over in a couple of minutes, a few years or decades in a character's life. Um, Paul gives us getting on for 20 years of his life as an apostle. Why? Because he's got a point to prove. Uh, The point he makes right at the beginning in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. The point that I think is a summary of the whole section. His response to the accusation that the gospel message he has preached and they've believed can't be trusted. So do look down with me. Chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. I got my gospel from God, says Paul. It's simple. That's these 24 verses summarized in six words. I got my gospel from God. And then Paul takes us um, right back to pre-conversion in verse 13, for the beginning of the montage. Uh, He writes, You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. Do you remember where I came from, says Paul? You know this story. Remember, I was as anti-Jesus as a person could be. You can feel the self-focus of those years and the way he writes, I, I, I. Then verse 15, but when God, God who had set him apart from his mother's womb and called him by his grace, when God was pleased to reveal his son, in me remember where i came from says paul you know the story remember i was as anti-jesus as a person could be until god revealed his son to me notice how paul speaks of his conversion he didn't have a sudden moment or a long journey of self-discovery He wasn't convinced, bullied, brainwashed, or even simply talked into believing by an unquestioning mother, a well-wishing grandparent, a persistent school friend, a radically different colleague. He didn't finally find his way to the truth through his own diligence and critical mind, through his work exploring all the different religions and worldviews of his era, through his deep insights into the ways of God and man. No. He became a Christian because he had God the Son revealed to him by God the Father. I love how passive that is. Remember how completely I was transformed by God's grace, says Paul. I got my gospel from God. Only God have produced a turnaround like that in my heart and my life. But from the end of verse 16, and Paul, Paul zooms in, He has a more specific point he wants to make, I think. He wants to persuade his Galatian readers more than simply that his gospel was from God, but that it was from God and not the other apostles. Remember last week, uh, apostle, that's how Paul introduces himself in the letter, 1 verse 1, simply means chosen one or sent one, person recruited by Jesus to spread the word of his death and resurrection. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 8 that Paul was in a bit of a different category from the rest of the apostles. Peter, James, John et al. They had known Jesus personally during his pre-crucifixion life. They'd walked the plains of Galilee and the streets of Jerusalem with him. With their own fingers they had touched the hands and sides of his resurrection body. It hadn't been like that for Paul. He hadn't known Jesus pre-crucifixion personally. He had been an enemy of the little he had known of Christ before and still after his resurrection. He only met the risen Jesus, um, we read in Acts chapter 9, much later, abnormally. And so the false teachers had an accusation against him. Or what you say may sound bold and exciting and original, but you're just a mouthpiece of the other apostles. Everything you say is just what they've told you to say. You're not so special. And I think the history we get from verse 16 right through to 2 verse 10, this montage of nearly 20 years is designed for Paul to to prove two things that will disprove that accusation. And these will be our two points for today. Um, Number one, Paul's gospel did not come from the apostles' message, from 1 verse 16 through to the end of the chapter, And yet, number two, Paul's gospel was the same as the Apostles' message, 2 verse 1 to 10. So let's look at that first point. Um, Paul's gospel did not come from the Apostles' message, 1 verse 16 through to 24. Um, Jumping back to verse 15, uh, let's pick up. um, Paul writes, But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. The first thing Paul did on becoming a Christian was to not talk to anybody. feels almost a little perverse. Um, But I think the key in that verse um, is the word consult. It, It means seek instruction or seek advice. It's not so much just share, but but take from above. Think of a colleague who uh, who hears something suspicious in the staff canteen and goes straight to the boss. Did you know that they're saying this? Are they right? How do we respond? Paul did not do this. He did not consult anyone. He asked no one's advice about this message. He sought orders from no human being about what to do with it. Paul needed no instruction from a human being because he had received his instruction from the Lord Almighty. God himself had revealed himself to Paul, had spoken to him. What could any mere human being say to confirm such an event? Paul did not talk to anybody because he got his gospel from God. And then verse 17, he writes, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. In fact, he did three other things. Uh, Verse 17, he went to Arabia. Uh, We know almost nothing about this trip. Did he go there to meditate on the message he'd received or to preach it? We don't know. Um, But he headed not for Jerusalem, but in a different direction, to Arabia. And then second, verses 18 to 20, he did go to Jerusalem, but not like that. Um, He did go to Jerusalem uh, three years later, verse 18. But this was not a getting the golden stamp from the apostles trip. Um, It wasn't until three years after he'd received the message. He was there for only 15 days at the end of verse 18. He met only Peter and James there. This wasn't a a secret handshake you're in meeting. He was already an apostle, and he had been for three years. It was just a brief trip to help him to get to know his fellow apostle Peter a little better. So he did go to Jerusalem, but not like the people are saying about him. Um, And then third, verses 21 to 24, he went to Syria and Cilicia. And so having been in Jerusalem for barely a fortnight, um, he headed out to Syria and Cilicia. And we know hardly anything of these trips. Um, Presumably he preached the gospel. Uh, To whom? To how many people? For how long? We don't know. But the one thing um, in the background of this whole narrative, I think, is Paul's connection to, or lack of connection to, the Jerusalem apostles, those who had been apostles before him. Uh, he writes, verse 22, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Paul received the gospel, and he taught the gospel independently of the Jerusalem apostles. His gospel did not come out of their gospel. His message was not just their message, dressed up and repackaged for a new audience. He did not get or seek their stamp of approval before he went out to preach. He was on the same team as them, as we'll see later, but they had very little to do with each other. In these early years, Paul received and taught the gospel independently of those who'd been apostles before him. But how could that be the case? How could Paul even know the gospel message well enough without the influence of those men who had walked with Jesus through his life on earth? Well, that takes us back to verse 12. So short, but so precious. Paul had received the gospel directly from Christ. Jesus himself opened the curtains of the heavens and spoke with Paul and told him that he had given himself, died, and been raised that all who believe in him might be rescued. As we saw in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 last week. Paul's message did not come from the apostles' message, it came directly from Jesus. And then second, Paul's gospel was the same as the apostle's message. From chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul's gospel was the same as the apostle's message. Um, Eventually, we read in chapter 2, verse 1, after 14 years, Paul went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas, and he took Titus along also. So having done ministry fairly separately for nearly 20 years, Paul does now make a trip to Jerusalem. Uh, verse 2, he went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them, he writes, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So Paul went there um, not because he was summoned by the apostles, but because he was summoned by God in response to a, uh, to a revelation. From God. They had a private meeting, and its conclusion, jump down with me to verse six. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Let's imagine for a moment what, what could have happened. Ah, okay, okay, Paul, you've been doing a really good job. You've got lots of stuff right. You've got the basics in place. But I think, I think you need a bit of training. Um, you haven't covered this, you haven't covered this. You really need to start including this and, and you've got this emphasis wrong and this emphasis wrong. You need to try and do it, do it more like this, like us. But that's not what happened. Verse 6. They added nothing to my message. They did not change the content. They added nothing to Paul's message. And then verse 9. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. The Jerusalem apostles did not change, did not add to Paul's message. They accepted it as being the same message that they too had received from Jesus. Just with a different audience. Verse 7. They recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. They accepted Paul, this newcomer, this previous Jesus hater, into apostleship on the same footing as the great Peter upon whom Christ had said he would build his church. It's incredible. And Paul gives us a case in point of their acceptance and a little window into what will be the main theme of the, of the letter as we get into the second half of chapter 2 um, with um, what happened in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 2. Um, despite fierce opposition in verse 4 from some false believers, the Jerusalem apostles agreed with Paul that the young, recent, non-Jewish convert to Jesus, Titus, should not be compelled to be circumcised. Why? Well, much more to come as we dig into Galatians, but just briefly, to require a non-Jewish Christian to be circumcised, to live culturally as a Jew, if they would be welcomed into God's people, as had been the case throughout the history of the Old Testament, well, that would be to undermine the freedom that Christ had now given his people in the Gospel. And Paul speaks in strong words. At verse 4, it would be a return to slavery into rule-keeping, as an attempt to get to God, to compel Titus or any other Gentile convert to be circumcised, it would be, verse 5, a denial of the truth of the gospel. And Paul and the Jerusalem apostles were absolutely united on this. For their gospel that they had received from Jesus was the same. And these Jerusalem apostles, they knew it when they heard it and saw it. And so we can trust the gospel message. Because it has come to us from Christ himself. It has come straight from the horse's mouth. We are not apostles, at least not in the biblical sense. We will not have met the risen Jesus in the way that they had but the Bibles we hold in our hands. are Not the result of Renaissance politicking, the products of the minds of medieval monks, or the invention of a carried away early church. They're the word of God, the words we hold in our hands, the word of God that came from the risen Christ to the ones he had revealed himself to and commissioned to write these words that the whole world may hear the good news. The gospel message we believe comes from Christ. It comes straight from the horse's mouth. And that means that the gospel message doesn't come from other people, though it may come to us through them. And I wonder if we sometimes slip into thinking, feeling, believing, placing a bit too much of our, our confidence in it coming from other people. The gospel message doesn't come to us from our parents, though they may be the ones who taught it to us. It doesn't come from this or any other church we've been part of in the past, though every good and faithful church will embody it and pass it on. It doesn't come from the pens of of Calvin, of C.S. Lewis, of John Stott, John Piper, Tim Keller, whoever else it may be, though Christ gives his church great teachers. The gospel doesn't come from other people comes from Jesus. And nor does the gospel come from our own experiences. Though by his Spirit, the Lord may well have given us wonderful experiences that we look back on fondly. It does not come from the reason and rationality that we apply to the Bible when we first considered and accepted its claims if we became Christians as adults, though the Bible is deeply reasonable and rational. The gospel message does not come from our sense of God's deep love for us. Though love us deeply, he most certainly does. And it does not come from great spiritual experiences we have had, great times in which we've known the Lord's hand and blessing. Though bless his people, our Lord by his spirit certainly does. But we must not make those things the source, the thing we think to be the origin because our Lord may in his good purposes remove a temporary blessing for a time for our good. And if when he does so, we think the cause for our faith is gone, then we stand on weak ground. We have something much better to hold on to. And that is that the gospel message we believe comes from Jesus, straight from the horse's mouth. It was revealed by Christ, to Paul in verse 12, to the other apostles after the resurrection. And it has been revealed to us through the spirit-inspired words that they wrote that we hold in our hands. So we don't need to worry. We don't need to worry whether the uh, Council of Trent got it right and the right Gospels were included in the Bible. We don't need to worry about whether they've been tampered with and changed over the centuries of the church. We don't need to worry whether the evangelists who wrote them were faithful witnesses. And we don't need to worry whether we've made the wrong call, whether the wool was pulled over our eyes when we were young and foolish, whether basing our life on this crucified carpenter will prove to be a fool's errand. We don't need to worry that when we die and stand at the pearly gates, there'll be nothing there. That Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, whatever it might be, will prove to be, after all, the true religion. Mm-hmm. That God will sit on his throne and point and laugh and say, what a fool, like the world does. No. Instead, we can look forward. We can look forward to being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air and be with him forever. We can look forward to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share your master's happiness. We can look forward to receiving the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on that day to all who have longed for his appearing. We can look forward to dancing out our days for the rest of eternity in the presence of the lion who is the lamb, with all his people from every tribe and tongue, You can be confident, brothers and sisters. We need not worry. Because you have seen me, you have believed, said Jesus to Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then later Paul writes, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Let's pause and then I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, it is hard to follow you in a world, in a culture that so frequently unpicks the words of scripture, unpicks the claims of Christ, and causes us to doubt. We repent of how often we succumb to those doubts. We pray that you might strengthen our faith. Might we know that this gospel message has not come to us from men and women, even if it may have come to us through men and women, but it has come to us from the risen Jesus Christ give us such great confidence in him we pray Amen Amen.